We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. I had an opportunity to read a book a few years back that many of you may have read. It was a bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. And one of the, the big things that Gladwell challenges in Outliers is the idea of, of the self-made man or the self, just, just the idea that, that it's a myth that there's a self-made man. And, and basically what he does is he looks at those who are outliers. So, so you've got standard deviation, you've got the basic, this is what most people do, and the outliers are the people that are way outside of that, that have phenomenal talent and skill and ability and have accomplished so much that we look at them and say, wow. And, and one of the things he does early on the book is he, he unpacks a study that was done in the 1990s at Berlin's Elite Academy of Music. This is a study some of you may have heard about, even though you didn't know you had heard about it. Uh, they, they went to this Elite Academy of Music, and they sat down with the students at this school, and they interviewed everyone. And they asked them all the same question, over your entire musical career, how much have you practiced? And the amazing thing about this study is that there were no exceptions. That they took the students at the top, they, they kind of graded the students into three categories. The elite students that would go on to become world-class musicians, the very good students who would be professional musicians, and then the, the average students, we're still at an elite academy, but these are the, the students that are probably go, gonna go on to teach music in the public schools. And one of the things that they discovered was that there were no exceptions. The students that were elite had all practiced more than the students who were good. And the students who were good had all practiced more than the students that were average. So much so that the, that the line delineated, the elite world-class musicians had all practiced over 10,000 hours. And that's probably where you've heard of this study is the, the law of 10,000 hours that, that basically says, regardless of your field, whether it's, it's academics, whether it's music, whether it's sports, that to achieve a world-class level, you gotta put 10,000 hours into it, and that's a lot that what they noticed is among these elite students, they all, all three of the groups started at a young age. To be at this level by that age, you started at age four or five in your music, but you started seeing a divergent, that the, that the, the elite students continued to pour, maybe they all started at five hours a week, but by the time they got to 18 and 19 years old, the elite students are putting 30 plus hours a week into music, whereas the other students are putting 10 to 12. And so the, the breakdowns were 10,000 hours, 8,000 hours, and 3,000 hours. And so Gladwell sort of sets this up, and I think it fits the myth in a lot of ways because we really don't see any exceptions, that to achieve an elite level, you've got to practice, practice, practice. And those who achieve an elite level without exception have practiced, practiced, practiced in an extreme way. And he says, what about prodigies? You know, that we come up with Mozart and you, you know, Mozart started composing music when he was like six or maybe three, I don't remember the age, but, but, but the point is he started it, the stuff he wrote when that little wasn't that great. 
But the fact he started that early and completely poured himself into music so that later in life, what he's putting out become classical masterpieces. But there's another element to be an outlier that Gladwell talks about in its opportunity. That it's not just enough to practice and excel. There, there has to be an opportunity that comes along, in many cases, even to let you have that practice. He talks about Bill Joy, the guy who uh, created Linux, which is going to be the background operating system for any of you who use Mac. Uh, how he had an opportunity that in the 1960s, he went to the University of Michigan. He was interested in doing science and math, but it just so happened that Michigan had the, the first mainframe that was accessible to students anywhere, and there was a glitch in the system that allowed them to trick the system, and instead of getting one hour a day in the, in the lab, they could stay all day, and, and so he would go through the whole night. And, and so you've got this myth of guy in the right place at the right time, but it's the guy at the right place at the right time with an ability to commit to something beyond that. The, the best example was the Beatles. The, the, when the Beatles came to the United States for the first time in 1964, we had the British invasion and, and Americans went crazy. Most people didn't realize that the band had been together for seven years before that. And they had been traveling to Hamburg, Germany, whereas in Liverpool, they would do a show that would be an hour long, but they would go to Hamburg they made four significant trips to Hamburg over those seven years. And in Hamburg, they were forced to play eight-hour sets. And when they were interviewing John Lennon about this, he says, look, when we did these one-hour sets in Liverpool, we could play our best music, put it forward, and we had the thing down. But you got to stand on stage for eight hours straight. That developed skills. So they ended up basically doing 270 shows over these four trips. And so by the time they hit the United States, they had performed over 1,200 times, the equivalent of 1,200 times, which for most bands, that's more than they'll ever perform. And so what you start to see in Outliers is, is this incredible convergence of a, of a diligence to work hard mixed with an opportunity, and that a lot of times there's more to it than meets the eye. Now, we're going to talk about this at the end and how... Um, how Gladwell gets some of that right, and there's some of it that, that I think we need to add a layer to. But I think it's a great analogy for us as we look at the text tonight, that, that what we're going to see in the life of Ezra is that his preparation made him the perfect guy to step in to, to the situation that we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 7. We're going to see Ezra, by being prepared and committed to the Word of God, he allows himself to be blessed by God and used by God in a unique way. That the preparation's there, but the preparation alone doesn't take care of it. It's the hand of God. And so, in, in our application, as we, as we apply this to our lives, we're going to look at the areas that we need to be prepared in and how we need to be prepared. As Ezra spoke to a, a generation that was in decay, how we might speak into our generation that's in decay. So if you have your Bible, open it to Ezra chapter one. Now we've done a bit of a time jump. Uh, as we've talked, uh, I don't know if you remember the chart we, we looked at in the first week. Uh, the, the Israelites had been in Babylon and then in Persia, 
under foreign rule for about 70 years. And the first six chapters of the book that we've been talking about took place under Zerubbabel as they came and they rebuilt first the altar. And then as we wrapped up chapter six, they were celebrating the restoration of the temple. And so that took place in a, in a period between 538 and 515. You remember, they started work on the temple. It got stopped. God communicated his displeasure that they had put the priority of their own homes over his home. And then they were able to complete the work. And so God, they found favor in God's eyes. They've built the temple. Uh, and then the gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 is about a 57-year gap. So this isn't, you know, for us, it's a page turn. But if you think about 1957, that's, that's I'm sorry, 19. If you think about 57 years ago, that's about 1965. So for those of you who are alive back then, you just think of that gap in your head. And that's the amount of time between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Now, in those years... Uh, the, the new king in Persia is Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes has had to deal with an invasion or a rebellion uh, in Egypt. And the Persians were able to defeat the Egyptians with the help of the Athenians. But, but some would say this affected Persia's way of dealing with foreign nations. So, so the thought is that possibly Ezra's return is even an attempt to set up a loyal Persian base in Israel that will serve as a buffer between Persia and Egypt. But as we're going to see in the text, that may have been Artaxerxes' plan, but that really wasn't Ezra's priority that when Ezra goes back, he's going to be sent back primarily. We always say Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and Ezra rebuilt the people. And so that what we're going to see in the second half of this book is largely a calling of the people back, that they've built the temple, they've set things up for the external worship, but now Ezra's going to deal with their hearts and the fact that their hearts are turned away from God. The first five verses... Uh, really give us an understanding and give us the credential of who Ezra is. That Ezra is qualified because he comes from the priestly line of Aaron. That Aaron's mentioned as the, the ultimate ancestor here, Aaron, the first priest. We have Zadok mentioned here, who was the priest with David and Solomon. And, and the point isn't to tell you that Ezra is an all-star, it's to tell you that Ezra is qualified, that by family line, he's qualified to be a priest, he's qualified to be a scribe, and this is just his basic credential to be able to step in. And so, so he lets you know in these first five verses that this man is God's anointed, and he's qualified as a descendant of Aaron. In verse 6, he says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God of Israel had given. The word scribe has some breadth of meaning. It, it, it's kind of the idea of a state secretary. It's an administrative title. Uh, it's, it means that he had some role some responsibility as a religious secretary. 
He was thought highly of. He had status. Uh, I, you might think of him as a secretary of religious affairs, but it, but it also speaks to his ability uh, that, that, that the author says he was well-versed in the law of Moses. And I think what he's trying to tell us is, hey, Ezra's not just a bureaucratical secretary of religious affairs. This is a guy who has status as a scribe, but he's also well-versed in the law of Moses. He knows God's word. It's not a political appointment. He's a faithful man. When we think of scribe, a lot of times we think of, of just a copyist, and he was more than just a copyist. Copying is one of the roles of a scribe, but, but it seems that Ezra's was much higher. And he goes on and he says, the king had granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord God was upon him. So he has some role with Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes trusts him. Artaxerxes is going to entrust him with quite a bit, as we'll see next week. But it's interesting that, that we don't just make a political statement here. It's interesting that we're not just appealing to Ezra being shrewd and well-connected. It's not that he had impressed the king and the king chose him because he was an impressive guy. What does it say? It says, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That, that we're going to see from this text, the primary reason the hand of the Lord is upon him is because of his, his handling of the law of Moses, of his understanding of his word, of his commitment to God and his commitment to a biblical worldview. But in the text here, it lets us know that the king, that he found favor in the king's eyes because the hand of the Lord was upon him. So on one hand, you might think Ezra sticks his chest out and is proud, but he realizes ultimately that it's those skills that he has that open the door for him, but ultimately they're not the thing that get him through the door. Ultimately, the thing that's enabling Ezra to do what we're going to see him do is the fact that the hand of the Lord is upon him. We see this same phrase twice, three times in this chapter. We'll see it twice in our text tonight, but we see it three more times in chapter 8. That six times Ezra lets you know that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And I think that's where you and I have to recognize that we we prepare ourselves, we're faithful to God's word, but ultimately, it's his prerogative. Ultimately, um, the hand of God is what moves us. And I think that's a, real, um, that's a real thing for us that we, um, it keeps us humble, right? That I think there's a self-righteousness that we have to guard ourselves from, that, that when we study God's word or we learn something maybe that other people don't know or we, or we are more faithful in a particular area, there's this real tendency to pat ourselves on the back. And yet as I read through this story with Ezra, I mean, he's got the goods, but he's still so quick to acknowledge that the thing that's happening here is happening because the Lord's hand is upon him. I think of Proverbs 21:31. It's it's a it's a proverb that sort of guided my life. Uh, but but the 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 proverb says the horse is made ready for the day of battle. 
that victory belongs to the Lord. And it's so good to me because it shows that tension, right, that I have to do the work. I have to pursue what's right. I have to study. I have to apply myself. I have to pursue sanctification. I have to work to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That there's an activity that's expected of me as a Christian as I walk that victory belongs to the Lord that ultimately I don't have credit in the accomplishment of it. That when I lead someone to Christ, I don't get to pat myself back on the back and say, you're an amazing soul winner. I have to acknowledge that the Lord's hand was upon him. When I succeed in anything in my spiritual life, I have to not pat myself on the back and say, you stud, you. I have to say, the hand of the Lord is upon him. And I think that's what Ezra is so quick to deflect to. Because this text really makes him look good. He makes him one of my heroes and should make him one of your heroes. But lest we idolize him to recognize that he was just a faithful man, ultimately, that the Lord used. In verse 7 to 9, we get a summary of the journey. He says, there, there they went up to Jerusalem, the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests, some of the Levites, the singers, the gatekeeper, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. So it was about a four-month journey. Calculations say they averaged about 10 miles a day, which is a pretty good clip. Uh, in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king, for on the first day of the first month, first month he began to go up from Babylonia. The first day of the fifth month he, month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was upon him. That basically, he even credits the good journey to the Lord's blessing. And so in that, in that to, to this point, what we've seen is God's given him favor with Artaxerxes, that the king of Persia recognizes and grants him authority and blessing to give him all that he requires for this journey. We see that Ezra is the kind of guys he's brought in here in verse 6, uh, verse 7, some of the people, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. Ezra knows we've got to have people who can administer and run the temple that this is one of the most pressing issues is we've got to have people who can help restore the temple worship, that the temple will run well, because that's the most important thing about us. And back from verse 6, that he taught the law of Moses. And then we come to, to the verse that I think is, is the point of this passage, the model for us. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is not a clever passage. This is not a passage that requires verbal gymnastics to explain it. It's pretty clear. Ezra studied the law, he did it, and he taught it. I think we look at that first verse, though. He set his heart that this isn't a leisurely activity. This isn't a pastime. This isn't something Ezra does for entertainment. It's not a casual thing that he does when he gets around to it. 
that the affection of his heart is turned toward this thing. The commitment of his life is turned towards this thing. It's not, there's nothing casual about it. And I think those words penetrate me to say, am I setting my heart after the word of the Lord? That there's an affection implied in that text that, that communicates sort of an intimacy, a desire. It's, it's like a ravenous hunger that this is my life. I recognize the importance of this enough to say that I'm going to set my heart to studying God's word. That he loved God's word, and as we're going to see in the following chapters, he loved God's people. And Ezra realized the main thing the people need is God's word. So if I'm going to pass this word to others, I've got to have it myself. You know, I think a lot of times when we think of God's word, it's especially if we go to the community at large, if we just ask people out on the street, they would have a pretty negative view of the word of God, meaning they would see it as a book of prohibitions. I know for me, before I started working with, walking with the Lord, that was my biggest fear of giving my heart to Christ was that he would suck all the fun out of life. And for those of you who walk with the Lord, you know that nothing could be further from the truth. That that negative impression of the word of God is a, is a rule book handed down from an angry grandfather. Unfortunately, the community around us thinks that. But I think when I read Ezra's words and the way he's going to approach God's word, the earnestness that he's going to communicate to those in sin around him in the following chapters helps me realize that Ezra sees something very different. He understands the word of God is is the source of truth. It's the anchor point. And just to study God's word isn't really the point, that, that studying without obedience is really completely missing the mark. That, that when we look at Ezra, we see him standing out in a pretty dark day, a pretty dark day in Persia, a pretty dark day in Israel based on what we're going to see in chapters 9 and 10. And Ezra stands out as a faithful man. And I think verse 10 really gives us an anchor point to understand what it is about Ezra that's different. Like when I read these words, I don't get the sense of a high and tight religious guy who's just interested in being condescending. When we think about the scribes, by the time we come to Jesus' day, the scribes had mostly moved into Pharisaism, and they had become people who were far more interested in their theological interpretations and the accuracy of their study and the external measure that they had kept things measured by than they were with the heart. And so I think in some ways when we talk about studying the Word of God, that would be one of the error, errors in the history of the world that, that you see is I become a student, I become a, a condescending jerk that just knows more about this thing than anybody else, and I just insist on being right. And I'm far more concerned about being right than I am with actually applying the Word. But Ezra's Word stops us short. 
And it says, wait a minute, Ezra studied the law, but he applied it. He did it. The other error is to, to do what's happening in, in our day a lot, and that's just sort of detach. And to say that the word of God maybe has a time and place for your religious beliefs, but it doesn't really apply to the real world where we're all living here. And there's a real tendency to diminish the role of the word of God. And Ezra's passage here doesn't let us do that either. Ezra set his heart to study the word of the law and to do it. That this is meant to be applied. And the idea you get is just that it's an idea of authority. That the Bible is unique in that it's a book that claims to have and exercises authority over our life. It's not just thoughts for living. It's not ideas about God. It actually claims to have authority over our lives. To which I would say, either it has that authority or it needs to be cast out for claiming it has that authority, right? Because if it claims to have that authority and it doesn't really have that authority, then, then what is it? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an imposter and it doesn't deserve to be followed. But if it claims to have authority and it does have authority, then it should make our knees quake. We should take it very seriously. And I think that's why when we see Ezra studied the, the law of the Lord and he did it, we recognize Ezra's worldview is really that the Bible is the source of truth. That, that in a lot of ways, Ezra, in those first five verses, we get his status, that he's a qualified guy of a long line in his family descending from Aaron but that doesn't guarantee anything. Guys that have been part of that descended family have been wicked, right? So just because he came from that family doesn't mean anything. Eli's sons, Samuel's sons, they came from the family line and they were wicked men. But Ezra is different. Ezra 7.10, Ezra sought to study, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. He longs for righteousness and not a righteousness that's determined by externals, a righteousness that's determined by God's word. His goal isn't simply to know truths about God. It's to apply what's true about God to the world. He's a doer. He doesn't just simply sit on a rock and explain to people what they need to do. When we look at his rebukes in the last chapter, we're not going to be reading the rebukes of a guy who's removed. We're going to be reading the rebukes of a guy who's within this group of people and he's living faithfully. I think as a church that we don't sit here and simply impart facts. My role here tonight isn't just to tell you about Ezra. It's to say, what must we do in light of this truth? That our goal isn't just imparting facts, that our goal is to train you, me, to train people in righteousness. Our goal in discipleship is to help others trust and obey God, to love God. 
If we're just an information club, then we've completely missed the mark. Ezra sought, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach others also. That's what Jesus did, right? That's what Paul did. That's what Timothy and Titus did. This is the model that I'm teaching you to obey after I've studied and after I've applied. I think, I think one of the questions that Christians have in this day as our culture grows more wicked is how do we live faithful according to a biblical worldview? Well, if all you're doing is parroting things you hear on the radio, if all you're doing is parroting arguments you've read in books, then you're always going to be deficient and you're always going to be behind the line, behind the time. That you and I have to commit ourselves to God's word so that our worldview is accurate to God's worldview. You see, I think a lot of times we can think of the, the word of God as sort of a recipe book. That was my idea when I was young. I thought you just flip to whatever passage it told you what to do, or you flip to this passage based on a decision you need to make, or you flipped on a passage to decide whether something was right or wrong, and that's how it was. But as I've matured, I've learned that, no, the word of God is like this thing that filters through my life, and it helps me know who God is so that it helps me understand the world around me from his perspective, from the creator's perspective, not just so I can quote it to people, but so that it informs the entire way I think about the world around me. You see, in our day, we've sort of elevated science and scientific discovery of the natural world above the Bible. And so that the world around us typically wants to look through the lens of science and nature to interpret the Bible. And if there's a contradiction, science and nature wins. But I think what Ezra was telling us is, no, you've got that backwards. You interpret your understanding of science and nature through the lens of God's Word. That the anchor of authority to the world around us is science and nature, except when that's inconvenient for them. And that's the internal problem, right? Because those are all observational things that can be falsified. But we say, no, the, the anchor of authority is actually God's word. And so that we're going to interpret those things through the Bible. That that has to actually be the bedrock anchor belief that I have that drives me to set my heart to study the law of the Lord. Guys, the world around us is going crazy. I think sometimes we can be naive to think that, that we could just fix this, that if we could just get the right thoughts, if we could just get the right power, if we could just have the right influence, if we could just win a few logical debates on YouTube or get the right guys interviewed in a TV show, or the right celebrities or athletes that would endorse our message. I think a lot of times we think that if, if we could win on the philosophical level, if we could get the right people in education, if we could just get enough influence, finally the world would see that we win the debate. And I gotta be honest, I don't think that's the way we as Christians live in this world right now at all. 
I think we're to be so set apart. And I'm not talking about passivism, and I'm not talking about detachment, and I'm not talking about separation in the sense of making a little bubble that we all live happily in. I get the sense that Ezra was the kind of guy that was delighted in God's Word. And when you're around him, you knew something was different. You guys know people like that, right? People that you've been around that really seem to have a deep trust in what God's doing. They're not going to flex on anything truth-related. They're not going to make any moral compromises just because you say they should. But there's a security, a rock, an anchor that they're attached to that you look at them and say, man, that person is attached to something bigger than themselves. I think if you and I pursue God's word, if we embraced a biblical worldview, if we thought of everything filtered through God's word, that we would understand peace because this world is not our home. That we would understand morality, that God is the one who wants what's best for us and explains what that is and, and commands us to walk in it. I think we would have a security if we set our hearts to study the word of the, the law of the Lord and to do it, we would have such a security around us that we would step apart from the culture around us and people within that culture, not all of them, but people within that culture would say, what is going on in that person's life? And then you say, well, let me tell you about my savior. I think a lot of times we're interested in putting some flashy foot forward that says, look at me, I'm perfect, you need to stop sinning. When the reality is, when we're anchored into the word of the Lord, when we set our hearts to know God's word, and then we live it out and apply it, that the opportunities to teach others will, will fall all over us because people are attracted to what God's done in our lives. And so when Ezra comes along like this, it's no accident. The Lord is using him. The good hand of the Lord is upon him. But behind the scenes, what we realize is for years and years and years, Ezra has been the kind of guy who studies, who does, and who teaches. That, that it's not an easy solution. You guys aren't going to go out of here and fix this in a week that this is a long-haul faithfulness that we're seeing that marks Ezra's life. When we think about the Word of God, it's just unparalleled. 66 books written over thousands of years, over 40 authors, countless prophecies fulfilled. Those authors are from all different stages of life, from king to farmer, and yet over those thousands of years, this book meshes together in an unbelievably cohesive unit. It's really mind-boggling. And that God did that for us, that you and I could know him. And when I read Ezra's word here, I see a man who had hunger. He's consumed with God. He's engaged with God's word. He lets it filter through his life so that he can teach others. It's, it's really like the idea of a natural relationship. And I think you and I have that same invitation. 
Second Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. That's what Ezra is. That's who he is. And so the support that we're going to see God do, the things we're going to see God do through Ezra over the next several weeks, I believe are a product of the fact that this is a man who pursues God's word. And so what about us? I remember as a kid sitting in the living room, my parents, they bought me a brand new, back then it was a Schofield reference Bible. Genuine leather outside, I've still got it at home. It was King James only, it was King James. They weren't King James only, but the Bible was King James. And I remember the excitement I felt when I got that Bible. I opened it up, you know, my dad explained to me the, the, the gold edges and the indexing and how great it was. And he taught me how to break it in. You know, you lay it open, we flip a few pages. And then you need to fan it because that gold dust on the edges is... And I just remember the excitement of getting this Bible. And then I remember just committing, I'm going to do that, read this Bible every day for the rest of my life because I knew it was important. And about two days in with the King James English, I'm thwarted. And that book sat on the shelf for years and years and years and years. And it was an overwhelming task. I knew I was supposed to study God's word, but man, I got lost. The narrative parts, I could kind of make sense because I'd heard Bible stories from my childhood, but the rest of it was like, whoa. And it really wasn't until I got to college, uh, got involved in campus ministry there, and the first time an older man started meeting with me, and he started teaching me how to study God's Word. And, and we sat down, I think it was K. Arthur's Precepts, Inductive Bible Study Methods, uh, had just, you know, that, that ministry had sort of taken off. And we sat, and for the first time, I learned observation, interpretation, application. And we worked through the book of Colossians was our first book to work through. And I remember having different colored pencils and marking that thing up and identifying subjects and verbs and key words and drawing structural relationships between comparisons and contrasts. And it was the first time anyone had actually taken me and said, here's how you study God's word. They didn't just hand me the Bible and say, read it. They say, here's how you study. And over the course of the next however many years it's been, God has slowly taught me how to study his word. And it's, and it's been kind of a, it's like sedimentation on the bottom of, of a river, right? Or, or coats of paint on a wall. You put the first coat up and there's still a lot of holes and you do a second coat and, you know, that sediment just builds up slowly. So it wasn't one day that suddenly I understood God's word better. It was the accumulation of a whole lot of days put together that Greg sat down and taught me to do for the first time. And it just, it began a lifelong process. And so for some of you guys, uh, you're sitting there tonight thinking, man, you're just telling me to read my Bible more. That's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm telling you to start applying yourself, set your heart to study the word of God. That if the God of the universe who created everything and knows everything has all insight, has given you this, this resource where he communicates, it is his way of communicating directly to us in a way that we don't have to mystically fear that we miss the message. That when I read this, it's as clear as if God is talking to me clearly. 
If you've got that, why would you not apply yourself to it? And so a few resources I would think about. First thing is, is if you haven't done 2-7 here at Denton Bible Church, get involved in a 2-7 group. I think we're probably coming up on new classes in the fall. Get involved in a 2-7 and you, and you will start the process of learning to study God's word. If you've been through 2-7 or have been discipled for a while, consider getting into BTCP or BTCL where the whole first Part of our courses in both BTCL for the women and BTCP for the men is a Bible study methods class. Where we'll spend a few months learning how to observe, interpret, and apply. Commit yourself to plugging into something that you can start to study with a system that he communicated to us with grammar, with, with language, subjects, verbs, direct objects. Like it's objective, it's measurable. You can read it here. It's clear. There's actual meaning to these words and we don't have to speculate what it is. Some of us just need more work learning how to do that. If you haven't, if you don't have the opportunity to sign up for those classes, there's a book by Max Anders called 30 Days to Understanding Your Bible that's an incredible resource. You'll do about 10 or 15 minutes each day where he'll take you literally through 30 lessons and you'll walk away from that book with your mind blown at how much you're able to understand more clearly the word of God just in a month because you're gonna overview category. You know, he's gonna start with, there's, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 66 books. There's 39 Old Testament books. There's 27 New Testament books. The Old Testament's broken up. And, and so some of it is, is just objective knowledge about the Bible, but then he'll start walking you through similar to what Walk Through the Bible does. Go to a Walk Through the Bible seminar if there are any nearby. But you've got to apply yourself. You have to commit to this. Think about the other areas in your life and the things that you'll commit to. For me, it's certain sporting events that you can't tear me away from them if I know it's coming up. But do I apply that same? Do I set my heart to study the Word of God? Two more resources that are helpful. Howard Hendricks, Living by the Book, if you haven't read that. Uh, or Gordon Fee's, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Are two good books that will get you started in a process to help you understand God's Word better so that you can learn it. But then don't stop there. As the Word of God instructs you and informs you, do it live it out, that your life should be constantly conforming to God's word. And then as you do that, you teach others. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. None of us are exempt. You don't get to check a box on this and say, well, I'm not really gonna be a stand up front teacher. You've got relationships in your life. You've got kids. You've got grandkids. You've got coworkers. You've got all sorts of opportunities to teach. You're a human. You've got all sorts of opportunities to do. The problem we often have in Christianity, though, is people want to skip the first step and jump to the second step, that I'm just going to do God's will. Well, how do you know what it is? Well, I do what is good. Well, how do you define what's good? 
How do you define what's right? Our culture around us is telling us all sorts of things are good. And if I just follow the wind of our world, I may completely get it backwards. It's not enough just to do good. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I do that? A lot of people say a lot of things is love right now. But I've got to live that according to God's word. So I've got to become a student. All of us have to become a student like Ezra. Thinking of outliers and, and, and Gladwell's sort of thesis that the idea of preparation and opportunity have to match together sort of in this magic shake that produces an outlier. I would just want to clarify that, that, that his view is a very naturalistic secular view. That, that you might even call what he sort of presents is, is what we might just even call luck or coincidence. And he's got a good point, just observationally, but you and I know what's going on behind the scenes because we know God's Word. So that what I would say to us is, in order for God, that we need to prepare ourselves so that when God puts his hand on us, or so that God can put his hand on us and work through us, that we don't want to find ourselves in an opportunity that God could have used us to say, oh, if only I'd been prepared for this moment. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach others. That's our example Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that leads, guides, and directs us. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we don't have to speculate or guess or wonder about your will, about your plan, about the world around us, that we are truly a people anchored to a rock, a bedrock foundation. And while the world around us is shifting sand, people looking for answers where there are none, we are a people who are anchored to the truth. And I pray for every one of us in here tonight that we would make a commitment to set our heart to study your word, to do it, and to teach others. So give us the strength to do that and then put your hand on us that we might accomplish your purposes. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.